burnout is characterized by cynicism. It's characterized by um, feeling trapped, not feeling like we have any place to go. And it can be characterized by a feeling of helplessness. And so if we're in a career where we're there because maybe somebody else thought we should be there or because um, it feels like we should be doing that, but it's not really aligned with where our hearts are, that is a recipe for burnout. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Andy. And I'm Arjun. And this is the podcast for inspiration, ideas and tools to help you find the right work. In our second episode of the season, we're talking to Dr. Tracy Brower. Tracy is a sociologist studying work-life fulfillment and happiness. She's vice president of Workplace Insight and the author of The Secrets to Happiness at Work and Bring Work to Life by Bringing Life to Work. Tracy gave us some fascinating and evidence-based insights on questions like, what are the ingredients for feeling a sense of purpose in your work? What's the evidence that empathy actually makes a difference at work? And how do we identify genuinely empathetic cultures? And is happiness at work too idealistic? And if not, how do we create the conditions for it? So we hope you enjoy this episode, guys. Please do rate and review us on Apple and Spotify and share the episode with others too. Andy, shall we get started? Let's do it. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us on The Right Work. How are you doing this afternoon? Doing well. Thank you so much for having me. We're really excited to have you on, and uh, we know this is going to be a really fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. Before we dive into that, though, um, a little bit of fun. Arjun's going to help us to get to know you a little bit better with a quickfire round. Over to Arjun. Thank you so much, Andy. Tracy, it's fantastic to have you on The Right Work, and as Andy said, we're going to get you in the hot seat. It won't be too scary, I promise. First question, crisps or chocolate? Hmm, I think crisps. Awesome. Favorite holiday destination? Oh, probably Hawaii. Our daughter and son-in-law are there, so that's the place to go these days. What's your pet peeve? Oh, pet peeve. I think people who um, don't put their whole hearts into things, people who are kind of lackadaisical. And what's your guilty pleasure? Mm, reading Stephen King novels. Lovely. What are you most grateful for today? Uh, I'm grateful for our life living on the lake. It's so wonderful. It's very calming. It's always very interesting. It's always very restorative. Fantastic. Tracy, if you could go back in time and give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, I would give my 18-year-old self the advice to take it more easy, relax more, be less, um, be less intense about work and about the future. And if you could become an expert in one thing, what would it be? Maybe nature and gardening and ecology. What does success mean to you? Um, success means meaningful relationships, um, long-term connections, and continuity with people over time. Oh, what a lovely answer. Tracy, what was your dream job as a kid? Oh my gosh, I wanted to be a ballet dancer, a French foreign diplomat, and or an architect. Oh, wow. oh and an author. 
Talk about variety. Wow. Impressive. What was the first job you ever had? Oh, um, you know what? I was a dishwasher at a restaurant. It was a very tough job, but I learned a lot. I can imagine. I can imagine. What would you say is your best and worst quality at work? Um, I think one of the better qualities I bring is maybe like uh, creative thinking and insights that I share with customers. And one of the worst is probably... Um, I lack an ability to turn off as much as I should. Okay. Okay. Nice. Great answers. Final question. Describe your current job in three words. Mm, in three words. Um, customer, insight, forward thinking. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Tracy. You made it. You made it through. Yay. Trial by fire. I, uh, I thought they were brilliantly speedy answers. Fantastic. So thinking more about your current work, Tracy, why would you say that your current work is the right work for you? I think about work related to energy. Like, I think the current work that I do is the right work for me because it energizes me and I'm able to bring energy to it. So it's both a give energy and a get energy kind of a situation. Like, I, I like what I do. It's aligned with my sources of happiness. I mean, every single thing isn't wonderful, of course. Like, no job is 100% perfect, and every organization has warts. But um, in general, it meets lots of my needs, and it energizes me. And I feel like, I, I feel like I'm good at it. Like, I feel like I always have a lot to learn, but I feel like I um, get good feedback, and so it's this opportunity for more learning and more challenge at the same time that I feel like I can add value. Fantastic. So we're going to explore more about the work that you're currently doing and I'm really looking forward to picking your brains on some of your insights. But let's um, start by taking a little step back and thinking about your, your own career journey and how you've got to this point. So in particular, I want to take you back to um, you first getting interested in the sociology of work and you pursuing your PhD in it. So could you tell us a little bit more about what in particular uh, in that piqued your interest and led to you pursuing that PhD? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, You know, it's really interesting. When I was in college, I talked to my guidance counselor and he said, you should be a bank manager. And I thought, oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and for the record, I would have been the worst bank manager ever to, to try that career. Um, but placement levels were very high with bank manager trainee programs. Um, luckily, I was pulled aside by another guidance counselor who said, no, what you really are interested in, as I hear you talk, it sounds a lot like human resources and people services. Um, so that's kind of where I started. And I actually had the opportunity to work as a secretary for a vice president of organizational development. And it was just the greatest career choice ever. He was a wonderful leader. He gave me tons of development experience. And I learned so much about organization development, organization dynamics, organizational culture. And that's where I caught the interest, I think, in organizational culture and people and how people interact with their work. And then it was a few years after that that I went back for my PhD. I love to write. I love to read. I love to learn. And, uh, and it was a really natural thing to pursue a PhD, which followed up on the master's that I had already gotten in terms of um, organizational development and dynamics. 
Thank you so much, Tracy. That's a, that's a really fascinating initial insight into how you got started in this space. There's a question that's burning at the back of my mind, and that's what you've potentially learned about how people come together around a shared purpose. What have you learned about purpose and how this impacts people's work, their environment, and ultimately how this then impacts their, their lives? I love this question. And I think we can look at it at so many different levels. Like like when I think about purpose, purpose is really three things, right? Purpose is a sense that there's something bigger than yourself that that matters. The second is that you feel like you can make a contribution to that. You can make a unique contribution to that. But then purpose always needs to be about people, right? Like I'll sign up for, you know, 15% annualized growth or whatever, you know, corporate checklist there is. I'm a good corporate citizen or a good organizational citizen. But the, I think the thing that really gets us all out of bed in the morning is feeling like we're having an impact on people, on our community, on human beings somehow, right? And, and the thing that I do needs to serve the next person and the next person and the next person. So I need that line of sight to that end connection to people. And I think that's critical in terms of purpose. I think another thing about purpose is that we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Like we feel like our purpose needs to be this big thing, right? Like I should be solving world peace or world hunger or, you know, world fill in the blank. And and sometimes I think we need to think about purpose in smaller terms. Like purpose can just be the thing that we do well. It can be our way of contributing. Like I deeply believe that work is fundamental to our happiness and our satisfaction because it's the way that we make a contribution. It's the way that we um, express our talents. It's a way that we express our capabilities. It's a way that we bring something to our broader communities and our colleagues. And so for me, purpose is that little thing that we do well. It doesn't have to be a big giant thing. It can just be the little thing that we do well on a day-to-day basis, the way that we show up, the way that we contribute the way that we express our talents. Um, And purpose can be different for everybody. But like you said, the more we have that sense of purpose, the more we are likely to be happy, satisfied, fulfilled, engaged, inspired by our work. Absolutely. I want to focus also on another part of your career, another part of your journey. So you've been a speaker and and a writer for so many publications, as well as holding leadership positions and being an executive advisor for a number of organizations as well. So how did you discover where your sweet spot lied in terms of where you could add value to so many of these varied opportunities and varied organizations? Yeah, you know, for me, it's all about people and sociology. That for me is the red thread, like how we affect our work, how it affects us, how groups function within organizations. And I'm probably an outlier. Like you probably talk to a lot of people who say, I made a vision board or, you know, annually I review my priorities and I set my grand plans. And I would say that I am less um, sophisticated maybe or less highfalutin in that way. I have always just done the next thing that was interesting to me, the next thing that made sense, the next thing that came to me based on the connections that I had made. I think that's been a really important part of my journey in terms of what I've done is I've just been really interested in connecting with people 
that are doing interesting things about which I am curious. And so like, um, like I met the founder of Like Minded because of some work that I had done on community. And I spoke with a group that he had founded. And then he asked me to be an executive advisor to his organization. So it started with the personal relationship. And the, the red thread was the theme of people and how people come together. Um, and so that's an example. So I think for me, it's about doing the next thing that makes sense that I'm curious about and focusing and prioritizing the relationships and learning more about what people are doing. And those end up being a really great way to kind of lay the um, stones and the pathway sort of one step at a time. What would you say helped you most in identifying that red thread? So was there a conversation you had with yourself? Was it a self-awareness exercise? Like what, what was it where that penny drop moment actually occurred to you? Hmm. That penny drop moment, what a great quotable quote that is. I think there have probably been lots of those penny drop moments. And, and for me, I think it's been about the reading and learning that I've done. Like I'm always reading and learning more, like all every day I'm reading and curious and um, exploring new things. And then there will be moments in that process where I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And then I hear myself telling a friend about it or asking a colleague about it or asking somebody for their opinion about it. I think it's listening for those moments reflecting on those moments, and then sort of capturing those moments. Like for me, writing has been part of that journey as well. Writing is how I think. It's how I process. It's how I um, uh, work through the things that are most interesting to me. So I think it is that um, learning, reflection, and then codifying what I'm learning in order to continue to explore. I really, really like that approach, uh, Tracy. And it's it's interesting because um, you said about kind of probably lots of our guests uh, have done the kind of vision boards and this kind of really rigorous prep. I think the thing that's probably most surprised me in this podcast is how few of them have actually done that um, and how many have said things like you in terms of following their curiosity. But at the same time, uh, for listeners to give them that uh, who are approaching this kind of intentionally and um, we want to help with some kind of practical advice, do you have any further tips building on on the insights you've shared for people who've, say, found an area, an industry that they're particularly interested in working in, but aren't yet sure where their place is within that and where they can add most value. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one pragmatic piece of advice is research, 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 and research outside of what you're being supplied by the algorithms, right? Like we all tend to be in echo chambers because algorithms work way too well, and we tend to be exposed to information that we already agree with or that we've already liked or clicked on or whatever. So we need to research outside of what we already know, kind of diversify, diversify our own thinking. That's one. Um, secondly, I think people are so smart to talk to lots of other people, like to really get different perspectives, people in the industry, people in the role, people who have shifted out of the role, people who are new to the role, people who are um, senior in the role. So people for me are another source of both inspiration and information. And then I think it's a really good idea to try things out. 
there's some great research on um, volunteerism. Like the, the more people volunteer, the faster they progress through their career and the more money they make, ironically, right? Um, and so I think it's finding opportunities to try the work that you're interested in, whether it's through volunteering, whether it's through raising your hand for a new role at work, whether it's through taking on an extra project that might be energizing to you. So try it out, experiment, take those first steps. And then the fourth, fourth thing I would suggest in terms of figuring out the work that is going to be best for you is stretch and challenge yourself. Like sometimes I think that we can wait and be like, oh, I'm not quite ready for that. Or, oh, I don't know if I'm up for that yet. Or I, you know, and we do this with humility, right? Learning and challenge are significantly correlated with happiness. Like the more we push outside of our comfort zones, the more we um, need to think hard, work hard, sweat figuratively or literally to do something new, the more of that is correlated with happiness. And so I think that setting up challenges for ourselves, taking initiative, raising our hands are all really, really good ideas. And through all of those four pragmatic ideas, I think we're constantly reflecting on what are we loving? What are we loving more? What are we loving less? The only other thing I would say here is that when we look at happiness in our work, it's really about this relationship between what we love to do and what we have to do. And we'll never get perfect alignment between those, right? In my life, there'll always be that expense report, which I don't love doing, right? We always have things in our work that we won't love. But to really think hard about what do you love to do? What do you have to do um, in whatever your chosen field is? And get as much overlap as you can between those. And sometimes... Doing what you love can also happen outside of work as well. Ironically, when you do things outside of work that you love, you perceive a greater level of happiness inside of your work. So it's super um, legitimate to go do volunteer work that you love as a way to meet those needs for fulfillment as well. Tracy, I really like what you're saying because I feel like one of the things that holds people back is a lack of information, but also a lack of confidence. And I think the steps that you're suggesting can help you feel like you're gathering information about this potential path that you, you're you exploring that you might want to go on. But you're also gathering confidence that actually you can, you can do this, or I'm confident this isn't right for me. So those two things, information and confidence, go hand in hand in this exploration process. And I think those, those four or five steps that you've just outlined just really help to close that gap. So, so what I want to do now is pivot the conversation to touch on your writing, because you've mentioned this and some of the ideas that you've been speaking about also show up in your books. So your earlier book, Bring Work to Life by Bringing Life to Work, really touches on how organizations can create fulfillment for employees by kind of supporting this work-life integration. I'd love for you to break this down for us. What do you think is actually broken in the way that we currently relate to work and everything else? I think one of the things that's broken is we see those things as separate. In the popular press, we get this message that we need to choose between work and life. And in reality, work is part of a full life. Work can be absolutely a source of happiness. Again, even if we're not finding the cure for cancer, whatever we're doing can absolutely be a source of happiness. 
all people have an instinct to matter. And so I love uh, a concept of contributive justice. That is the idea that we should all have the opportunity to make our best contribution, right? Distributive justice is about how we distribute the goodies and the controversies and debates that go on about how the goodies should be distributed. Contributive justice is the idea that everybody should have the opportunity to do their very best work. And one of the things that I think is broken is this idea that somehow I have to choose between work and the rest of my life and work is a slog and work is always bad. And the best thing about work is weekends. But I think if we shift our mindset to, gosh, how might we create the conditions for happiness? How might we think about ourselves as being empowered to do that, right? Like this is the relationship between agency and structure. Structure is societies, organizations need to create the right conditions for people to have a good work experience. And that is absolutely a responsibility. Agency is the idea that we each have empowerment and capability to do that for ourselves as well. And so I think another thing that's broken is this idea that we just hand it over to somebody else and that we can be happy in our work and fulfilled in our work when somebody else has figured out the right conditions for that. But in reality, we can be agents of our future. We can create our future. And it's a both and, right? It is about structure and the responsibilities of communities and organizations. And it is about the um, responsibilities that we have for ourselves. And I think the other thing about work is that we need to think about it in relationship to community. Like we have the obligation to serve each other. We have the responsibility to serve each other. And that is a very good thing. That is about the netting and the webbing of our social capital. That is about valuing other people. That is about valuing the way that our work serves the broader community. Those are good things because they give us an opportunity to feel valued, to feel like we matter, to have the opportunity to express our talents, as I've talked about. So those are some of the things that are broken. And I think that we can absolutely find solutions, right, in our mindset about being empowered, our mindset about knowing that work is part of a full life, our mindset about um, community and the beauty in how we contribute to others and contribute to the broader society. I think that's uh, that's a really fantastic set of insights. Building on that and thinking about uh, listeners who are in that position where they they want to take that advice forward and find work that's right for them that aligns with those things. Uh, what advice do you have for people in terms of what they should be focusing on and what they should be conscious of when they're searching for the right work? I guess I have two streams of thought on this. One. I think we can validate and legitimize different types of priority for work. Like some people will have more of a job concept and priority for their work. Like, like they go to a job, they earn a paycheck, the paycheck helps them to care for loved ones, it helps them put a roof over their head, it helps them put food on the table. And that is super legitimate to have more of that job-oriented focus. Another group of people may have a career-oriented focus where they get the most meaning from 
a type of career, a type of a competence that they develop over time, that they contribute through a variety of different organizations. And another level or group would be groups that have more of a mission orientation toward their work. Like, like they do their work as a deep sense of who they are that's associated with their identity and their mission as a, you know, human in the world. And there's no value judgment on any of those. Like, I think we want to validate and legitimate all of those types, those three types of approaches to work. The other way I like to think about the answer to your question is to think about as we're figuring out the work that is the right work for us, the best work for us, we can think about what does it mean to be happy at work anyway? And I like the concept of dedication, immersion, vigor, and mattering. So dedication is about, I feel dedicated to my work. I feel like I want to give that extra oomph. You know, I want to I don't know, work that extra 15 minutes to get the project done versus just kind of turning off at the end of the day. So that dedication is a big deal. Immersion is about feeling immersed in the work, feeling surrounded by it in a good way, feeling like work is something that we want to invest ourselves in. And vigor has to do with the energy piece that I was talking about at the beginning, like work that gives us energy, effort that we want to put energy into. It's that reciprocity of energy. And then finally, work that feels like it matters, you know, like, and, and I deeply believe that all work has dignity. Like you think about um, the importance of controlling disease in a society and the place that your mind might go is to doctors, right? And healthcare professionals, but also garbage collectors contribute to the reduction of disease in society, their control of disease in society, right? So all different types of work lend to that broader picture. So those two are ways that I think about reflecting on the right kind of work, whether it's a job, career, or mission basis, and whether we're getting dedication, immersion, vigor, and mattering from the work that we do, and really aligning the kind of choices we make with those kinds of criterion. And they may change over time, and that's cool too. As we evolve ourselves, our work can evolve as well. Fantastic. Those are two really, really useful frameworks for our listeners to be thinking about. So in different places, Tracy, you've written about some of the other things that people might be conscious of and looking for in work and in, in workplace kind of cultures and jobs. And one of those, I think, a really interesting article you wrote is on the role of empathy and empathetic workplace cultures. So could you tell us a little bit about whether, uh, in your mind, people should be prioritizing those, those kinds of cultures? And for those who are, what are the signs they should be looking for? Yeah, super interesting, right? Because empathy has traditionally been soft and fluffy and not really a business thing, right? But new research on empathy demonstrates that it's absolutely correlated with business results. So being empathetic, putting ourselves in other people's places, thinking about what they might be thinking or um, considering what they might be feeling um, are really important for people. They're important for good leadership. They're important for us being good humans together in community, right? And they are really good for business results. When people experience more empathy, they tend to report greater innovation, greater engagement, greater productivity, greater intention to stay with an organization greater mental health, which means they can bring themselves more fully and more effectively to the workplace. So empathy ends up having some really, really important outcomes. 
And I think when we are creating a culture of empathy, number one, that's super worth the effort. Um, but number two, that is about how we develop leaders to listen, to ask questions, to offer resources, right? Leaders don't have to be social workers, um, but they do need to tune in and be present and ask questions and be ready to offer resources um, if people need help. When we create cultures of empathy, I think we can also help people to develop teamwork together, right? One of the best ways that team develop, teams develop bonds, um, colleagues develop bonds, is through working together, rolling up sleeves, having common goals. So, you know, Zoom happy hours are a great idea, escape rooms, you know, whatever, rock climbing, go do those things. That's great. But also, bonding occurs through tasks. So, creating cultures where people are bonding through tasks, where they're building relationships, where they're recognizing each other, where they're feeling like there's clarity in terms of their role and the way that they contribute. And then I think a third way that we can build cultures of empathy is by really thinking about development and growth and asking people, what do they want? Because at different stages in your career, you may want different things in terms of your progression, your promotion, your pay, your growth opportunities, your autonomy, your flexibility with hours and places of work. And so part of that creating a culture of empathy is, is developing people, but also developing people based on what they want, being empathetic about, gosh, what does this person need that's unique as compared to this person or this person or this person? And so that would be a third way that we could think about creating cultures of empathy. Tracy, I, I really like everything that you're saying about empathy. And, and to be honest, if an organization had all of those qualities, you know, this would be as close to the ideal place to work as you could imagine, right? The, the question that's, uh, that's kind of ringing in my head at the moment is, as somebody who might be in the job, job market looking for a new role, it's often quite difficult to get past the shiny employer branding that a company kind of puts on their front page or on their careers website and to actually understand what what's life really like how do i actually know this organization is going to be empathetic yeah this is this is the million dollar question right and i love your point about kind of getting through the shiny employee branding and what's really underneath one thing i think people can do is really pay attention to their gut and we absolutely know there's chemistry, right? Like there's chemistry between people, there's chemistry with organizations. And so they might check all the right boxes, but it just still doesn't feel right. And so I think we need to pay attention to that. Or maybe they don't check as many boxes, but oh my gosh, it just feels like a fit, right? So I think that's one is just really pay attention and reflect on how's your, how's your gut responding to the interviewing? That's one. Another thing I think people can do is talk to as many people as possible outside of the talent recruitment department, right? Because talent recruitment is about sales, right? You're talking to the salespeople. You want to talk to the colleague you're going to be working with. You want to talk to the person that just got hired about how their experience has been so far. You want to talk about the person who might be your mentor in the new um, job. You want to clearly talk to your leader who's going to be hiring you. You want to talk to the person that they're going to set you up with as a buddy. So I think that's another thing is talk to as many people as you can. Another thing is to talk to people in a casual setting if it's possible. I know with so many... Um, 
uh, video interviews. This is harder to do. But if you can, go to a coffee place with somebody or walk through the parking lot on the way to dinner. Those experiences of informal conversation are really, really telling in terms of being able to kind of get the inside scoop. I think the other thing that you can do is really ask some pointed questions about when people succeed around here, what is it that they're doing? If people have stumbled, what are the landmines to look out for? What are the ways that I'll be developed over time? What are the elements of culture which uh, contribute to somebody's success in this role or in this company or organization? Another question to ask, I think, is how do leaders stay in touch with their teams? How does that typically work and what are the dynamics? What are some of the ways that colleagues interact with each other? Those questions, are you're just looking for patterns. You're just looking for typical behaviors. But culture is about a shared set of beliefs and behaviors. And if you can get a sense for those, you can feel how you fit. And the last thing I would say is you want to look for fit today, but you also want to look for fit tomorrow, right? Like find the job that you think you'll love but also find the organization where, and the people with whom you want to grow. So maybe the, the job you're looking at is, I don't know, 70% of a match, but you know you can grow with that organization. Pay attention to the kind of the present fit, but also the future opportunity, how you will fit and how you will be able to shape the culture. So those are some ideas for me. I think... Um... Those are, those are some great ideas. And I think lots of our listeners will have been scribbling down all of those questions to ask prospective employers. Um, so one of the other really important aspects of work that you've written about is um, careers that come with respect and which ones have most respect. And I know a lot of our listeners do think about this when they're making career choices. So could you tell us a little bit more about what are some of the careers that kind of come with the most respect and, and what of the the features within that, and then whether and how people should be prioritizing that in their own search for work. Yeah, this was really interesting research that's fairly new. I just wrote about this in the last couple of weeks or so. But you would expect that the most respect comes from prestige, status, pay, right? Like that's typically how we think about it in, in our society. But in reality, the most respected careers are those that contribute to the society, that help others, that demonstrate caring, and that uh, require a high level of skill or education or physical capability, interestingly. So um, some of the really respected careers are in IT. Some of the really uh, respected careers are in the military, in the medical services, in terms of people who support youth. Those tend to be the careers that um, gain lots and lots of respect. Low on the list, interestingly, are politicians and social media influencers. So, um, so interesting. I also think the data is interesting in terms of um, the careers that are most respected in relationship to the careers that people would actually want to do. And that's an interesting gap too, right? Like sometimes I think we can have super high respect when a career is something that we don't feel like we could do ourselves or that we wouldn't want to do ourselves because of that gap. And so I think that's something to think about too, is really, really appreciating the skills and competencies that we have, the ways that we contribute, and then really, really appreciating and respecting those that are very, very different than our own. 
But we can create our own respect as well. This gets back to empowerment, right? So when we work really hard to do our best, not 24-7, not to the exclusion of having, you know, other things in our lives, but when we express our best, that absolutely garners respect. When we are developing our capabilities, that garners respect. When we do our best to line up what we love to do and what we have to do, we tend to be more energized. And that enthusiasm, that energy, that engagement tends to garner respect. When we are super respectful and curious of others, that also garners respect. So there are ways that we can create respect in the work that we do. And I always like to say it, it's really a great idea to perform well, even if every single thing you do isn't the thing you love to do. So even when you're doing windows, figuratively speaking, you want to do great windows. And that is often the pathway and the runway to your next developmental opportunity. Tracy, I'm just wondering, in your research, have you found this kind of interesting relationship between respect and value in the sense that people can respect a career, but because it's not what they value, they don't want to make career decisions based around that. So people might respect uh, teachers, nurses, but maybe their value set is aligned more to maximizing income or, or prestige or at some point buying a sports car or something like that. How, how do those two things kind of play into career decisions? Yeah, you make a really good point. And, and I do think it's important to say that the careers that are respected, pay, prestige, um, you know, the ability to kind of contribute um, monetary and capitalist value are in the list. They're just further down. And, but I think that in the final analysis, when we're finding the right job, the right career, it's got to be aligned with our values. It's got to be the thing that excites us, right? Like maybe, I don't know, maybe fame is important to us. And so we need to find a career where there's more visibility and accolades. I don't know, maybe creation is important to us. So we need to find a career where we're creating, where we're responsible for um, drumming up the new idea. Um, so, so I do absolutely think that while knowing what careers are respected may be part of our decision-making process, in the final analysis, the thing that we love to do most and the thing that's most valuable to us is the thing that we should be really moving toward, right? So we have that, so we have that alignment between our values and the time that we spend. And, and that's one of the elements of burnout, right? If we burnout is characterized by cynicism. It's characterized by um, feeling trapped, not feeling like we have any place to go. And it can be characterized by a feeling of helplessness. And so if we're in a career where we're there because maybe somebody else thought we should be there or because um, it feels like we should be doing that, but it's not really aligned with where our hearts are, that is a recipe for burnout. So I think there is this really important point you're making about really lining up what's most important to us. And therefore, then, how do we need to make the decisions about the career that we would choose? Fantastic. So let's think a little bit more about um, the search for work and um, this idea that we've already touched on of happiness at work. Um, so you've written your more recent book, uh, The Secrets to Happiness at Work, and you've already alluded to some of the aspects of happiness at work. But I think 
um, a lot of our listeners will be wondering, but how do we actually define happiness at work? And if we're honest, some of them might be a bit sceptical and think, is this even a realistic possibility or is it just a kind of utopian ideal? Yeah, I think that's realistic. And I also think the question that people ask is, you know, is it worth it? Is it kind of fluffy? And actually, when people are happy, they set bigger goals. They're more physically healthy. They tend to be retained by their organizations. They tend to be better performers and they tend to be more engaged. So it's super worth it for us to think about happiness. As we think about defining happiness, I think it goes back to that idea of feeling a level of um, dedication, immersion, vigor, whether we feel like we matter. And, and another thing that's important to know about happiness at work is we tend to pursue happiness for its own sake, which is actually correlated with less happiness because it tends to focus us on what we don't already have. Otherwise, why would we be pursuing it? And it tends to be self focused, which is uh, negatively correlated with happiness. When we're focused on others, when we're focused on our contribution, that is very positively correlated with happiness. The way that we really create the conditions for happiness, so instead of pursuing happiness for its own sake, we can create the conditions for happiness. And we do that by ensuring we have a sense of purpose, which we've talked a little bit about. Um, another thing that's highly correlated with happiness is feeling like we're connected um, we're connected with colleagues. We feel a line of sight of our work. We feel like we um, have relationships, both at a superficial level and at a deeper level. We um, tend to be happier at work when we perform better. So when we put ourselves into it and when we find the places that are um, enabling us and empowering us with the tools and cultures that we need to be successful, that's a very big deal. Um, we should. We can also create the conditions for happiness at work when we're um, challenging ourselves and stretching like we talked about before. And another thing that's super correlated with happiness at work is gratitude. And this feels like one of those silly little like, you know, feel good things, but Lots of research is actually borne out when we think consciously about what we're grateful for, when we are intentional about being grateful, not just for things, but for people, for conditions, for our capabilities, that is significantly correlated with happiness. Amazing. Amazing. I have a follow-up question, and it's related particularly to the time, the unique kind of time that we're in coming out of a global pandemic and entering this kind of wave of mass resignations where everybody's kind of thinking about work in a completely different way. Why is now a really unique time in history to think about creating conditions for happiness and to consider happiness as a core tenet for our career decision making? Oh, right. Like the answer is in the question. I love the question that you're asking. Um, I absolutely believe this is going to be the most significant reinvention of work in our experience, right? Like it might be less so for a particular job, for a particular role, a particular industry, a particular region. But as a culture, as a society globally, we are thinking about work much more consciously. So we have this new awareness about work. We're thinking about the nature of our work. We're thinking about why we work and where we work and for whom and with whom we work. And happiness ends up being something that energizes us, that keeps us around, right? The great resignation is some of the best evidence that what we've been doing up until now isn't working. Otherwise, people wouldn't be resigning at such high levels. So 
we have figured out at a new level that what we were doing wasn't perfect. We figured out at a new level what some of our new priorities are. There's some beautiful research on people who reprioritized the content of their work, their friendships and relationships, their uh, communities and their connections with others. And so that recognition that we need to do something different, that reprioritization put us in a wonderful place to think, okay, what would we do differently? How would we create a sense of well-being, a sense of joy, a sense of happiness in our work and in our lives? This period of time is unique in terms of it being not only a level of awareness, but a ubiquitous level of awareness on this topic, right? Like you can't, you can't pick up a newspaper, figuratively speaking, without seeing a topic related to well-being, the nature of work, how we work, where we work. Fantastic. Um, Tracy, this conversation has been packed absolutely full of insights. Um, but in our, in our final kind of closing minute, um, we'd love to know what's your final piece of advice to help listeners find the right work for them? Mm, final piece of advice is absolutely you can do it. You can feel empowered to invent your future of work. You can be reflective and you can take action. Like one of the things that's true is taking action to solve a challenge is correlated with happiness and it's correlated with more life satisfaction. So take action, reach out, experiment. Those are really good idea in terms of creating your own future of work. Brilliant. Um, well, thank you so much, Tracy. This has been a fantastic conversation um, and we really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's been amazing.